Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. And the last time we came together in Romans, the message was titled The Righteousness Gap. And that's important because, you know, you study the Bible, you read Genesis to Revelation, God is righteous, he is perfect, he is flawless, he is sinless. Um, He set mankind in motion with free will and unfortunately as a human race we've largely moved away from him, which causes a sin issue. And sin is really sort of a negative thing, and I I mean in positive and negative, in that uh, God has this standard that's perfect, and he just is love, he's righteousness, he's truth. Uh, But sin is a negative, as in positive negative, in, in that we can't reach that standard. So there's a righteousness gap. You look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, it's the same thing. And we see the, the Mashiach, um, Yeshua, has uh, bridged that gap for us. Today, the message is titled Saving Faith. And at first glance, we're going to read about somebody who lived thousands of years ago, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. But it goes much deeper than Abraham himself because the Bible makes the case for Abraham's salvation. It was through faith in God. You know, God was the one who did all the work. God was the one who could bring salvation, not us. And what we find is that Abraham, prior to circumcision, prior to works, prior to the law, he was righteous and it was imputed to him because of his belief and trust in the living God. And we're going to look at this in four parts. So it's very interesting. We're going to jump in to Romans 4. Verse 1, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast or brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he goes back to Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work... But believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David, or King David in the Old Testament, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, he credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes uh, David in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So to impute righteousness but not impute sin. We're in trouble if sin is imputed to us. So the first out of four parts is that Abraham's righteousness was apart from the first out of the three uh, sections here, and the fourth is, is the end. What, so the first out of the three, or the three out of the four are negative, what didn't save Abraham. The fourth part is what did save Abraham, and that's the good news in the end. So context is, you know, is that Salvation is through Christ apart from works. And why? Why is this so important? Why are we not saved by the things we do and the good deeds and all that kind of stuff? Because we can boast. 
You know, anybody who knows me well knows that I'm very competitive. You know, whether it's a board game or a physical activity, must be a senior pastor thing. I'm very competitive. However, what you know what God says when it comes to salvation, that needs to be put aside because I'm going to do the work. Because here's the problem with competition. When you compete, and it's fun to compete on this earth, somebody always loses. God set up a system of salvation where nobody loses. That's the awesome part of it. God says, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do all the heavy lifting, and you just have to believe and trust in what I did. Pretty neat, huh? Pride, boasting, none of that stuff has any place in salvation. And I love that about him. It's a completely fair system. We look at this, even our nation, which is probably, you know, head and shoulders, um, checks and balances above a lot of nations, there's still injustice in our country. There's still things that we see that it just seems very unfair. But in God's economy, everything is fair. So we're not justified by works. Otherwise, we could boast. Otherwise, Abraham could have boasted. But Genesis 15, 6, he quotes right from Genesis. It says that he, Abraham, believed God, and it was accounted to him or imputed to him or credit to him for righteousness. What did he believe? He believed he trusted God for his future. He trusted the promises of God. He trusted what, that when he died, he would be with God. Abraham couldn't have done that himself. He had to trust God for that. And it's really amazing in Romans 3.25, and if you didn't get it last Sunday, get it for free on the website. Uh, Romans 3.25 tells us that God, even though he saw all these sinful conditions in the Old Testament, in his forbearance, in his mercy, in his patience, he didn't judge anybody in the Old Testament. He allowed them to die in peace, and when the Messiah came, which all the Old Testament prophets pointed to, that the sins were covered all the way from the past, present, and future. Time is not a thing with God. It's a thing with us. We see in linear time. He sees everything at the same time. So if you get the last one, you'll kind of see. People say, well, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Well, we're reading about it right now when it came to Abraham. He trusted God for everything. Now, verses 4 through 5 makes the dichotomy, and Paul does this. The Apostle Paul does this. He almost kind of, he goes from a monologue to a dialogue, and he answers questions that a lot of people have that were asked before or before somebody asks. That's just the way he kind of ran this in these chapters. But he makes the dichotomy between a person who works, right, and a person who believes. And the person who works, he says, incurs debt. And we can look at this in two ways, and both of them are not good. A, that the person who works earns, right? If you work at a job, you earn money or something. And if you look at that in context with God, and people do this, you know, I'm going to work my way to salvation. Well, here's the problem. Well, what if I work a lot more than some other people? Well, then God owes me more. God is not a debtor to anyone. So works, forget about it. You don't work for your salvation. The other way to look at it is that a person, if they have to work to earn salvation, well, even Isaiah 64 says, when you look at motives and a lot of things and compare it with the righteousness of God, Isaiah 64 says that even our righteousness can be like filthy rags. So what happens? Now we're in debt. We're debtors to God. And that's a problem because... God wants a a fair system where everyone can be saved equally. And that doesn't work either. So he kind of goes through these arguments that people have, even today in religion. In a lot of religions, you know, I know when I was in a denomination, it was almost like a board game. When I was young growing up and you do this and you, you take two steps forward, you take three steps back. And I couldn't follow the religion anymore and I just gave up. 
And then I found a church that teach the truth. And then I got saved. So uh, it, was, it was very attractive to me. So here's the thing. We can't work for something that's a, a free gift. And we never want to leave the protection of God's grace and step into the arena of working for our salvation. So you have all these different philosophical, um, logical arguments for why it's better to choose the grace of God than try to do it yourself. Because we're always going to fall short. The law showed us that in the previous chapters. Verse 5, it says that he, God, justifies the ungodly. Who's ungodly? Well, all of us, right? The human race is stained by sin. So he justifies the ungodly. God saves sinners because we could never get to heaven on our own. Now, here's the caveat. People say, but but what about, Pastor Joe, what about good works? Isn't it good to do good works? Yes, but don't put the cart before the horse. Having horses now, I know that there's a certain way you have to do things, but uh, what happens is you, you accept God's free gift of grace for your salvation. You trust God, and then you do the works. The works don't save you. The works come afterwards. Why would we do works? Because I'm so thrilled. I was so thrilled to be saved that I want to do good works. I want to be like Jesus. So works are good, but they don't save us. Works come afterwards. And that's the problem. People get it backwards. You can't work for your salvation. Um, James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. Is he, is he contradicting the Apostle Paul? Absolutely not. Right? Grace is what gets us saved. But works are the evidence that we are saved. And again, naturally, not like the cults where they, they check off boxes and they ask you how many times you did this or did that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that naturally emanates from a person who has Christ in them, who wants to be like Christ. You naturally want to do good works. You know, verses six through eight, David, King David is brought in in a witness, uh, so to speak, in this argument or debate in Psalm 32. David committed some pretty big sins. King David knew that even though his heart was for God, he had a desire for God. You know, David was, uh, he had high highs and low lows, you know. Uh, he wrote the Psalms, he was in love with God, but then when he sinned, boy, he really plummeted. So David even knew in the Psalms that he couldn't save himself. He says, blessed is the man, blessed is the person to whom sin is not imputed, to whom the sins are covered by God, Right? So you see everyone, whether it's Abraham or Moses or King David or, you know, the prophets, Isaiah, we covered that. They're all saying the same thing. And that's the blessing, no matter what book you read. So David, remember, salvation is sacred and pride and competition have no place in getting to heaven. That's a free gift. That's called grace. And I don't know about you, but if there's a door that says, hey, Joe, you can walk through door number one or door number two. And door number one says, I walk through it and there's grace and, you know, God did all the work and um, his righteousness is imputed to me. And um, he loves me so much and there's so many promises and I can be assured of getting into heaven. And door number two says, well, Joe, you can go through that door, but that one you're going to have to work your way to get to heaven. And if you commit one sin, you break the chain, so to speak, and, and you're... You've missed the mark. You're damned for eternity, and you're going to be judged based on your missing the mark and how many times you did it. Well, I'm a fool if I pick door number two. Listen, I'm competitive, but I'm going with door number one, folks, because, you know, that's the one that's going to get us to the place we need to be when we die. 
verse 9, we continue. It says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Remember, the Apostle Paul is a rabbi. He's speaking to other rabbis and other Jewish people. And even Jewish people that have come to Christ that start to lean back on the old system again. So he's making sure they understand. Let's look at the life of Abraham as the role model. And this is what this is all about. But it really isn't about Abraham. This chapter is about God, if you think about it. He says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Right? The sign of the covenant with the Jewish people. Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. If you read Genesis, you read the account of the scripture. These are facts. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, really both, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Right? God said to Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. Yes, the one nation, but Abraham, your faith, your example, you know, these, these parallels in the scripture, you're going to see. This is going to cover the whole earth, right? Jew and Gentile. And verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision physically, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And we talked about circumcision, right? The sign of the covenant. We went through that in previous chapters. So two out of four is Abraham's righteousness, right? We saw it was apart from works. Now we also see that Abraham's righteousness was apart from circumcision. And, and some do boast. They boast in their religious rites and rituals. And, um, you know, the Apostle Paul says circumcision is great. It's something that God had commanded for the Jewish people. But, you know, it has to be of the heart. It can't just be a physical thing that you do. You know, it has to be in here. God's less concerned with outward observances than what's in our heart. You see what I'm saying? We can do, there's a lot of, Jesus spoke about a lot of the religious people who did a lot of religious things. And they weren't even saved. And, and sometimes we read about stuff in the paper and we're aghast that somebody of such a high level in a religious organization could commit such heinous crimes. And you say, did that person ever even know God? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew 23. It's, it's worth looking at. So, and again, we can look at the same thing with baptism. As Christians, we get baptized. But is it something that's really in our heart or is it something we do because everybody else is doing? It should be something that's really in our heart. So the Apostle Paul makes the, the argument and the truthful argument, according to Genesis, that Abraham was righteous prior to even him being circumcised. Remember, he was called as an adult to be separated unto God, to be the father of the Jewish nation. So he was righteous prior to circumcision because of his faith in God. And that's the beautiful thing is when we speak about this, I even hesitate to say that any of us are righteous. When we have trusted in God and we have faith and we have belief his righteousness is, becomes imputed to us. We don't really have righteousness in and of ourselves. You know, we, we are credited by God, and therefore we get to fellowship with him and be with him for eternity. And this is interesting because he also makes the case for Gentile inclusion. Now, in Genesis 17:4, again, he says, I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham didn't even have kids yet. So this is the beauty about God. He sees what we could be. 
He sees what we could be if we follow him and we trust him. God sees the future. And I could just picture Abraham listening to God and going, I wonder how that's going to play out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but, but it did. It did. I mean, after all, Abraham was, was righteous prior to works, right, circumcision, law, and even a covenant with God. When Abraham was called, think about this, he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which we know later was the Babylonian Empire, which was filled with paganism. So Abraham was an adult. One day God calls him. He says, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart, but you've got to get out of Babylon. That place is poison. I'm paraphrasing. So Abraham was like everybody else. You know, you would almost say prior to all these rites and rituals and signs and seals and covenants, he was really behaving or living as a Gentile. It's fascinating. In Romans 11, we're going to find out that uh, he makes the case for Abraham being the father of both Jew and Gentile in a spiritual way. And even as Gentiles that were grafted into that, that tree of the Jewish people in a spiritual sense. And that's exciting if you think about it. Really exciting. God's truths are so inclusive. It's such a brotherhood and a sisterhood. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. It unites us all. And again, we look at our culture, our culture is divided. And hopefully we carry ourselves differently based on our faith and our belief system. Everyone's welcome, you know. So this, this, this opens up a larger discussion, really, um, because today... People are still hanging on to dead things. They're hanging on to things that can't save. Uh, And once you read the scripture, you find freedom in the truth, right? You look at uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The church, who was almost a majority, were Jewish. They were even talking about, hey, so how does this work with the Gentiles coming in? You know, what what rights do they have to follow? Like, what should we should we put any burdens on them, even at all? You know, to have them come into the fold. It's a very another fascinating chapter in uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. So this is the crux of the matter here. Why would God institute some of these observances? Right? Why would God? Why would He institute the Passover? Why would He institute communion? Why would He do any of these things? And the answer is because the physical is supposed to remind us of the spiritual. And that's why Jesus taught parables, you know. didn't matter your educational level. An illustration, a story with somebody who could be over, uh, overeducated or undereducated, everybody can understand the story. So Jesus would say, hey, um, you know, he would teach and he would look around and say, hey, there's a shepherd tending some sheep. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Everybody's familiar with that? Yeah. Well, let me tell you about how God wants to be with us how he wants us to be his sheep, and he's, you know, the shepherd. And all. So people would be like, oh, wow. What Jesus would always do is he would take a physical illustration and make the leap to helping us understand heavenly things through a parallel spiritual illustration, which is fascinating. This was done in the Old Testament, too. A lot of these rites were supposed to be mnemonic devices to remind us to jog our memory about a relationship with God. The Passover is all about a relationship with God. It's all about the coming Messiah if you actually start to break it down. But here's the danger, folks, and it's only because we're humans and we get into routines and stuff like that, that a problem comes in over time when the thing that's supposed to point us to God is worshiped instead of God. That's the danger. And that's sometimes the danger in religion. 
You know, I remember as a kid just having prayers. I, I could still, they're in my head. I said them so many times as a kid when I would go to church, they'd be memorized. I could do them right now in front of you without any notes. It's, it's in there. But I never as a kid understood the point of the prayer or the meaning of the prayer. I just was supposed to memorize it and repeat it a whole bunch of times. That's the danger. And I'll repeat that again. The danger is when the thing that's supposed to point us to God in a relationship with him is worshiped instead of God. That becomes problematic. And then we have to understand, we have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do in this church? And I'm good with people saying, hey, why do we do this? I'll sit down with you, I'll explain it to you. Because you should know why we do this. And if you're doing it without thinking about it's your implications with your relationship with God, then we're all missing the point, right? Even the Apostle Paul, um, Jesus, right, speaking about communion, do this as often as you do it. People have like a set schedule, but you could do it when you're, having your friend, your Christian friends over for dinner and you celebrate, um, you take communion. Oh, Pastor Joe's going to get mad. It didn't happen in the church. No, I'm not. He says, do this as often as you do it. You come together as believers, celebrate communion, right? It makes sense. You know, the church doesn't need to have all that control. So it's fascinating. So we're going to continue verse 13. Now let's look at the law. For the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What vehicle, what stream did it come through? For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, faith and the law rules, and, and these are good rules. These are God's rules. Don't murder, don't steal, all good things. They have their place. But when it comes to getting saved... We don't get saved through the law. We've covered this in previous chapters. The law shows us that, we're, that we have a deficit, that we have a void in righteousness. We have sin issues. That's what the law does. You, you look at all the laws, good laws in the Old Testament and in the, in the, in the New Testament, you're going to find some that you've broken and that I've broken. And what is that? Missing the mark. And what is that? That's called sin. So the law reveals to us where we're lacking. But faith shows us the way to salvation because instead of sin being imputed to us, righteousness, God's righteousness is imputed to us because he did the work in covering those sins or atoning for those sins. So, folks, if you're, you're brand new to the Bible and you're like, man, I'm a little bit confused, don't sweat it. These are the nuts and bolts of what we believe. It's very deep. It's very legal. It's very logical. But the bottom line is, Abraham just had faith. You see what I'm saying? Abraham wasn't a scholar. He just says, you know what, God? I'm going to follow you. I believe you. I trust you. Some people didn't. They said, no, God, I'm not going to follow you. And we read about that in the Bible. Some people had a whole heart towards God. Some people had a half heart. Some people had no heart towards God. God gave them that free will to go their own way. So Abraham wasn't a scholar. You don't have to be a scholar. You just have to have faith that God is going to do the work for your salvation. And again, he did that through his, his Messiah. So three out of four is Abraham was righteous apart from the law. Why is that? Right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Down here is Moses. So Moses, in effect, was Abraham's great, 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 a whole bunch of greats, grandson. There was no law given until Moses. So Abraham died and went, you know, and, and died in peace before the law was even given. So Paul's saying that 
Abraham was righteous apart from the law because the law wasn't instituted yet. Pretty interesting, isn't it, when you actually go through this? And, and I encourage you, you know, challenge me or challenge the scripture. Go back in, into Genesis and read about Abraham and read about his life. There's several chapters that are awesome chapters that speak about Abraham. Now, let me just make this crystal clear to everyone. Was Abraham perfect? No. That's why he had to get his righteousness from God. You know, when you look at some of the things in Abraham's life, did he sin? Of course he sinned. We all sin. Did he have some lows in his faith? He still believed God, but maybe in some instances, like with Ishmael, he thought maybe he could help God out with this situation instead of fully trusting in God. And he learned a hard lesson over that situation. Just like us, folks, we have our highs and lows. We have times where we're riding high and worshiping God, and it's awesome. And then we have times where there's situations that make us question some things. I'm just being honest with you. We all go through the highs and lows. So I I say that on purpose because if I wasn't taught those things, I might have never come to faith. I would have thought it's only for perfect people. Oh, it's for imperfect people? Then sign up Joe DeProsimo. He wants to be a part of that. Awesome. So I'm letting you know what I was taught And it's right here in the scripture. That's why we have to trust in God because we're not perfect. We're not righteous. He is. So we go through this. Faith is superior to the law. And the reason is because faith helps us to tap into God's promises, his relationship with us, and also to assure us that we can trust him with our future. That's what faith does. The law doesn't do that. It just reveals deficits in us. The law was created to do certain things and no more. Faith is something different, right? It's an exercise of our will, our emotion, our intellect to turn to God and focus on him. And again, God gave us free will. We don't have to. Read the news. The world's in a mess. The world is, Rome is burning. (laughs) We have problems in our country because as a culture, we've largely turned our backs on God. And then we suffer for it. It's not God's fault. It's because the human race is in a bad place. But God's like, I'm always here. That's why I'm here, (laughs) to tell you that, right? I'm giving you the good news. Verses 14 through 15, he says that, again, you know, if you want to take the law route, it's only going to bring wrath. It's only going to bring judgment. You have to go the grace route. And I'm going to to wrap that up and make it... um, understandable um so verse 16 last few verses it says therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I have made you a father of many nations. It's been repeated a few times here. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Do you realize that Abraham didn't see a lot of the promises that God would do through him while he was alive. That's the coolest thing. When Abraham died, he got to, probably got to see what God was doing through his progeny, was, get, was doing through his faith, his example. I could imagine, and I don't know, does God give people the ability to do this? 
you know, almost like watching a movie happening before you? I, I don't know. But I'm sure at some point Abraham understood. I'm really glad that I, that I turned to the Lord. I'm really get glad that I trusted him because I could have gone the other way and stayed where I was. You know, we get comfortable, don't we, even as Christians. God says, sell your house. Go move to another nation. Hey, where are we going, God? Don't worry about it. Hey, how's the view? Is there an ocean front? Listen, don't ask me those questions. You have to trust me. And that's what faith is, you see? He even said to get, get away from your neighborhood, get away from your kindred. Just come and follow me and trust me. Back then, that was a difficult thing to do, folks. But he, did he have some trepidation? I'm sure. Do we have trepidation when God calls us to do something? It's right, but it's difficult. Folks, I know there's a lot of preachers out there that I'm competing with that always want to tell you everything's great and life is wonderful and God's going to give you the mansion on the cul-de-sac. It's, you're never going to grow listening to that stuff. Because if you really look at the people in the scripture, they went through difficulties following God. But they had to choose. Do I want to love this world that's temporary? Or do I want to love God who's eternal? You know? That's a... I'll, reserve, I'll close my mouth at this point because sometimes thoughts come in my head while I'm up here. I do want to say more about those preachers, but so I'm done. I'm going to continue reading. <laughs> and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. 100 years old. Hey, uh, Abraham, going to have a kid now. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, Abraham, his reproductive system, Sarah, her reproductive system, past childbearing years, big time. And you know what God did was he made something dead alive and he did that on purpose because it was an object lesson. I'm going to get to that. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, (laughs) there's a lot of things repeated here. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham, it isn't going to be of you. It's going to be of God. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. See, check that out. Not only did Abraham not see all the promises come to pass, but imagine God saying to Abraham or finding out later that in 2019, this was also written for us. See, some things are written in the scripture. It's like, oh, well, God needs to see that this is going to happen. God knows it's going to happen. But it was kind of cool to, to read about it so that we could know that it happened and what happened. So we can be edified. So it was not just for him, but it was also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, our sins, and was raised because of our justification. So four out of four, the positive end, as in negative and positive, meaning negative, not a bad thing, but subtracting, positive meaning added, so I don't want to mix those up. Um, Abraham was righteous and he was saved by faith. So he goes through circumcision, he goes through works, he goes through the law, and he goes through every single point, going back to Genesis, that none of these things saved Abraham. He was saved by faith. If you would turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and I know we covered this last Sunday, but there are some of these scriptures that are so powerful that, you know, they never lose their potency. It says, very pithy, two verses, 
for by grace. Now, this is the New Testament. Did God change his MO? Did he change the way he does things? Nope. It's still through God. It's still through faith. It's still through grace. For by grace, we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, brag, say it was me. I had a part of it. And sometimes, folks, people are considering coming to God, but when they're told you don't really have a part in saving yourself because they're prideful, that irritates them. And they're like, no, I'll find a religion that um, pretty much I can get credit for. I'll find a religion where, you know, if I give enough money, if I do enough things, I'll have a seat with my name on it somewhere. And, you know, they'll, when they put a wing on, it, it'll be etched in the, in the marble outside of the church. That's sad. That's pride. And we all struggle with pride to more or less of a degree. God is saying, it is not you, it's me. Well, what about 0.0001%? Can I have that much? Nope, zero. God 100, us zero. And again, it's, it, it's a learning curve, it really is. But grace is the vehicle, I'm sorry, grace comes by the vehicle, which is faith. So how do these things all work together? God's grace. And I look at this as I can't help it because uh, it's just a cool thing. Um, it's like a, like a shower. You know, God showers us with his grace, with his love, with his acceptance, with his adoption into his family, with his promise, promises, promise of eternal life, on and on and on, grace. It's just something that we don't have the ability. And the author of that grace, the progenitor, is God himself. But the vehicle is faith. And that's the interesting thing. We can, we can have his grace or we can walk away from his grace, and many people do, and for various reasons. But faith, our trust, our belief, you know, our, our, our change of our will to look towards God and to be able to receive of that grace. And salvation comes with that grace. Without it, there is no salvation. We can't work our way into heaven. Now, grace and faith are yoked together as works and the law are, your, are yoked together. And again, as long as grace and faith come first, then it, it's good to follow the law. It's good to work. It's good to do good works. But what comes first? Grace and faith. That is it when it comes to salvation. Right? James says, faith without works is dead faith. Because once we're saved, the evidence that we are saved is the fact that our hearts change. Instead of being selfish all the time, spending all our money on ourselves, spending all our time on ourselves, spending all this stuff on ourselves, we say, you know what, Lord, what do you want me to do? I know you saved me. I know I have no part of that, but I want to be a part of your, your harvest. You know, I want to be a part of seeing people get saved too. I want what I have. I, I want to tell other people about it because it's so exciting. And God's like, absolutely, absolutely, do it, do it, Right? Again, as long as we follow the, um, the order. In closing, synonyms for faith. Trust, confidence, assurance, reliance. Now, I, I looked in the dictionary too. The confidence that someone or something is reliable. So when we, go to the, when we go to the store to buy whatever we want, furniture, stereo equipment, computer stuff, and it's a big price tag, it's a few grand. Then you go up to the counter and they're starting to load it in your car or you're loading it, your friends are loading it, and you take out that little piece of plastic in your p- pocket. 
that's just a piece of plastic with numbers on it. It might have a chip. It might have a magnetic stripe on it. And you go to slap that thing on the counter, you actually have faith when you do that. You're having faith in A, the system that communicates with the bank, and B, the fact that the bank says you're not over your credit limit, sure, we'll, we'll front you the money, pay us back later. Isn't that amazing? Imagine somebody from 200 years ago watching what we do today. How did you get all that stuff with that piece of plastic? You realize how much faith you're exercising when you make that transaction? That security's not going to tackle you and say, oh, no, you, this is a stolen card. You've been declined. You can have assurance and confidence to just put that plastic down. Heather, don't get any ideas. <laughs> plastic. Uh, so... Where were we? <laughs> Hebrews 11.6. I'm, I'm not done here. <laughs> Hebrews 11.6 is pretty cool. It says this. Now, we, we talked about what the dictionary says. Let's see what God says. And it's the same thing, but in a different way. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. Isn't that amazing? God loves it as his children when we have faith in him. You know, when my son was a little boy, um, he thought I could do anything, and I loved that. And not because of pride, because he's, he's a little kid, you know what I'm saying? He's nothing he could do for me. But just that relationship, you know, that he would just keep looking to me. Of course, I, I would show him Jesus and teach him Jesus, but it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And people say, wait a minute, all these good deeds, but do you have faith in God? That's big. For he who comes to God or she who comes to God must believe that he is. Number one, the first prong is that he exists. He is. He's there. That when you're praying in the car, you're not talking to your windshield. You're actually talking to God. Big difference. And that second prong, that he is a rewarder. He rewards those who diligently seek him. It's powerful. You know, God's my superhero. Just letting you know. And today... I didn't see the movie, but you hear all this stuff about the Avengers and millions and millions of dollars that they're grossing in the first weekend. This world is so sad. Our culture is so sad that they're looking for pretend people to save them. Why, are, why is American culture so into this superhero stuff, right? Because our culture is pathetic. Because mankind can't save us. And those actors and actresses, when they go home, they got the same problems you do. They're not superheroes. I got news for you. If we could put up the image, I saw this meme. This is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. So there's Jesus in the center. I love Spider-Man. He's hanging upside down. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be like Spider-Man. Anyway, um, so there's the Hulk. Was it Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Spider-Man? And Jesus tells them the story about, he says, and that's how I saved the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Is that a superhero or what? We can't, we can't do it on our own. People try so many things. They buy new cars. They buy new houses. They go on expensive vacations. And listen, I'm not against any of that stuff. It's innocuous. But if that is your way to fill a void in your heart, you're looking in the wrong direction. Because the void in our heart is like the bottomless pit. It's a black hole. And you can throw the new car in there and you can see it as it's going down. You go, oh, I really like this new car. This is so really neat. 
And then it's like, it doesn't have that new car smell. It's getting old. You know, you go on that European vacation for two weeks, and it's marvelous. And after a few weeks, it's gone, and you're like, oh, I'm not really satisfied anymore. That's the sad thing. And God has designed us with free will, but also that void to, as his fallen creations, to look for him, right? To desire him. And especially when our lives are not cutting it, you know that wealthy people have problems too. Wealthy people have kids that go astray. So it isn't a money thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it affects the poor and the wealthy alike. Nobody can escape it. Death to life. As I said, the reproductive system of Abraham and Sarah were completely dead. But a child came from those two in their older years. In addition, Jesus was clearly dead on the cross. Witnesses saw it. The nails were piercing his, probably through his carpal bones, his navicular and his um, cuneiforms and his feet, um, severing nerves, blood vessels. Between the fourth and fifth rib, a Roman spear went in to pierce his heart. He was dead. He was lifeless on that cross. But just like he gave life to Abraham and Sarah and their progeny, he brought Jesus back to life. And you know, that's the thing that our God is king of to take dead things and make them new and make them beautiful. You can almost see that in nature too, right? In the fall and the winter, stuff falls off the tree and seeds grow in the ground. And Jesus said, he even spoke about that. You know, a kernel of wheat. It doesn't really come to life until it dies and falls off and goes into the ground and then it sprouts new life. God, you can see this in nature. God is the king of bringing dead things to life. So I want to ask you this morning, what is, what is it about your life that appears to be dead? Folks, you didn't come in here for no reason. And for those of you that are seeking, you're not here by chance. This is the message for you. Is it, is it your faith? Is it your belief in God that might be dead, it might be waning? God wants to do a new thing in you. God wants to do a new thing in you. My question to you is, will you trust God with the things that you think are dead to allow him to bring new life to them? Will you exercise like Abraham Saving faith this morning, not having all the answers, because we like that. We want to know everything before we make a decision. Will you exercise saving faith and trusting the living God for your salvation and for your eternity, like many others have? Will you do it? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Every time I